0: Insight, the podcast of the Ontario Psychological Association. I'm your host, Dr. Jonathan Douglas from Central Ontario Psychology, a private practice here in Barrie, Ontario. And I am with Dr. Sylvain Roy. Now, Sylvain and I go back many, many years. Sylvain was the uh, uh, president-elect under me when I was president of OPA some years ago and now he has moved on through the role of president and into the role of past president. So he and I are trauma bonded having gone through many of the same issues throughout those years and relied heavily upon each other for shoulder crying and and other forms of emotional support. So welcome Sylvan.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Great to be here.
0: I was you were just giving me a, a great answer a moment ago on uh, where you are currently working, which I think is 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 really interesting let's let 's hear from you on that
1: yeah, I have many hats, and uh, I think the biggest part of my practice today remains with um, uh, persons who are experiencing homelessness and more precisely people who experience chronic homelessness, so because of things like uh, intellectual disabilities, brain injuries dementias. Um, so I do a lot of work in the city of Toronto with a place called Seaton House, but also more broadly with the, the shelters in the GTA. And um, for the past couple of years, ran a couple of clinical research projects that took me to Ottawa, the York region and so on. Really at a systems level, trying to figure out how do we analyze gaps? How do we connect patients to care? And certainly, how do we I, identify um, those needs? And, and psychological services is, is certainly a gap in the system right now. Homeless people, as you know, cannot afford psychological services. So, we need a system that's willing to pay for those services. I'm fortunate to be part of an interdisciplinary team, a family health team that does just that. So, I get the ability to work with physicians, social workers, um, nurses, you know, really great partners overall to try to come together and address homelessness. But that piece about, you know, trauma and brain injury is so prevalent.
0: Absolutely. And that's our theme today. Our, our, what this episode is all about is access to services and gaps in services. And, and you know, that's what I really want to uh, uh, be focused on today. Um, when I was a solo practitioner, I'm now in a group practice. So I've got like, you know, 15 people here. I've got four admin staff, which are fantastic. But before I had those admin staff to protect me from phone calls, you know, I'd be the guy picking up the phone uh, whenever it rang. There's one kind of call that I always dreaded, and it was the call from the person who didn't realize that we're not covered by OHIP. Mm-hmm. So these are people who are looking for services, and I'd be the one at the front line saying, I'm so sorry, you know, but, you know, you you do have to pay. Yeah. And every single time, it was painful, right? Every single time, you know, I said, you know, you'll have to look into your, uh, your coverage through work. Oh, I'm not employed. I'm on ODSP. I'm sorry. You know, there's there's no no service available. And, you know, if um oh, I've looked into my coverage. I've got $300 a year. I'm sorry. You know, that's that's enough for a handshake. It's really really difficult, you know, to be in that position of having to to say no when the need is so great. There's publicly funded services that are out there, but they're overwhelmed, right? They they've they've got long uh, waiting lists, and if what you you know if you truly need a psychologist, there's almost no psychologists out you know beyond uh, Toronto. There are very few psychologists that are actually still in publicly funded systems. You know yeah. the uh, psychologists were defunded out of the out of the publicly funded system in the 1990s to a large extent. So it's really hard to get publicly funded services, particularly for adults, I find. You know, there are services that are available, you know, psychologists to the school system, um, you know, psychologists in in some children's mental health centers. But when it comes to adult uh, mental health, the access to psychology is a real, real problem. You know, there are really very, very few Uh, even even the private practices okay our private practice here in in barry you know we have uh like i said we you know we've got you know four or five psychologists per se and we have some other professionals as well and we are we're constantly challenged to meet the level of demand you know we can't even you know you think private practice, oh, at least there's no wait list. Well, that's actually not true, particularly if somebody actually needs to see a psychologist, which is so often the case depending on their extended health benefits, right, that might say, oh, it has to be a, a clinical psychologist. It can't be a social worker. It can't be an RP or it can't be somebody under the supervision of a psychologist. And so yeah. demand goes up even even in the, in the uh, private practice. In, in my private practice, this, if you have to see a psychologist, you're looking at a minimum of two months, as high as 10 months, depending on who it is. So it, it's, it's really very difficult, you know. And this is all adding up to a crisis in mental health care, right? We're seeing a, a, a stigma is dropping. We're talking more about the importance of mental health as a society. We're raising awareness of the importance of mental health. And people are getting it, and they're saying, yes by golly, I, I do need this help. I do, you know, I am struggling and I, I've got to do something about this before it gets worse. Now, where are the services? Yeah. And they're not there, you know? And, you know, now we're dealing with the pandemic. We've got demand going through the roof. Stress is going through the roof. We're hearing about anxiety and depression and addiction, all of these things that are happening. And where are the services to be able to respond you know, to this, to this emergency. Now, as a profession, we've been struggling with this for years, right? You and I have struggled together, you know, uh, in the trenches of this, of this problem. And, you know, I, I really want to hear, cause I've been out of the, you know, away from OPA for a number of years now, what's going on? How, how are we struggling to, you know, to, to improve what, you know, what's going on out there?
1: So, yeah, so you've unpacked quite a bit there in that comment, Um, taking a step back, like we have 14 million people in Ontario, right? And the need before COVID was there. The crisis in mental health care was there before. You, to your point, the public-funded agencies like uh, like CMHA, CMHO, and even hospitals are recording quite a bit of long lists. Um, before exiting CAMH, my wait list was over 1.5 years at CAMH for wow. diagnostic assessments. Wow. Uh, so understanding that, so we have a big population. Um, and then when we do have psychologists in the public system, we have to remember that over 50% of the workforce now has been pushed out of the public system. We are non-private, so over 50%. Or in private practice, the ones that remain in the public systems are typically those that do uh, things like psychoeducational assessments in schools Mm -hmm. or diagnostic assessments and so on. So we have very, very low capacity for psychotherapy in the public system. So if you're looking for treatment, group treatment, individual treatment um, that is not pharmacological in nature, you will have a very, very hard time finding that uh, particularly from a psychologist now we know that nurses and and psychotherapists and social workers are being employed with the structured psychotherapy program uh, but again there's a big disconnect here about you know what the population needs and wants and what the program is actually offering um, some good attempts but falling way short and and the reason for that um is you know public funding for mental health is under par uh, we have not reached it. We, we had hopes, um, you know, starting in the Liberal government before they got booted out. There was hopes of you know, those billions of dollars that are needed in the system to really um, strengthen the system. That never materialized and has still has not materialized under this government. There has been no new money, for example, in the, the budget yesterday for for mental health. and And that's a problem. So what do we do about that? So, um, so and on the flip side, we know that in the private sector, 83% of our psychologists in the private sector, um, uh, you know, do the are the ones that do the psychotherapy. So, you know, when you look at the capacity for psychotherapy in the system, 83% is in private sector. And if there's no connection between private and public, um, you know, no HIP funding, no HIP plus type funding, then patients will be out of luck. So they'll have to rely on out-of-pocket expenses. Or if they're lucky, maybe if they work for Starbucks or RBC and so on, where they might have the coverage, um, they'll, they'll be okay. But that leaves many, many individuals out of luck, like the patients I'm serving in the homeless sector. And, you know, and, and things that we've been trying to do, like obviously we've seen the demand increases and we, you know, we even as part of COVID, we made a decision recently to, Activate what we call the disaster response network. The demand was there. The need was there. So, and we had a a decision to make. We wait for government to step up something. Explain to me
0: what the disaster, yeah, just explain to me what the disaster Mm -hmm. response network is.
1: Yeah. so it's been around for over 20 years now um, great colleagues of ours started years ago and it's meant to be activated in disasters so if there is a tornado or gun shooting and we want to provide rapid access to psychological services for, you know that are trauma-based trauma-informed and so mm-hmm. on um, you know instead of letting people wait months and years for that services we want to boost on the ground almost to provide that services now it's not an immediate aftermath. like we don't want you know a psychologist on the scene 30 minutes after a shooting, we want them to be available days, weeks, and months after an incident happens. Um, and it's a service offered for free by psychologists. So psychologists offering pro bono services at their own expense. Um, again, it's a collective of a psychologist. So,
0: I just want to pause that for a second. Yeah. Okay. Let's just reflect on that for a moment. <laughs> this is a, a pro bono service. So it's yeah. no cost to the client. Correct. And it's being offered by psychologists who are not being reimbursed. Right. So this is literally we're working for free. We're practicing our profession for free. There's no reimbursement. There's no charity out there saying, oh, we'll we'll give you some money towards this. There's no there's no offsetting of the costs associated with, you know, having an office or anything else. That's just we're just going to rise, stand up and do this because it's the right thing to do, which is a wonderful thing. I think it's an amazing thing that we're willing to do this and i also can't help being appalled correct. why do we have to why why are psychologists being called upon to provide their services for free right i mean th- this is a necessary health service
1: correct well, it's a, it's a dilemma that we've, you know, we had to do so much back and forth behind the scenes, right? And we were criticized by our own colleagues. You know, a couple of papers came out of that. You know, why would we want to do this? And, and, and it's a fair point, right? I think there's some a lot of good that came out of the, of this. Like we knew collaborations, uh, you know, with physicians, nurse practitioners were, you know, two one one, the Red Cross. So many great partnerships came out of this. So they see, like they saw, well, well, this is available now. Let's use it. So definitely a lot of collaboration. The good thing that came out of it, patients are getting care. So we're talking about dozens and dozens of patients that received and they would have never seen the psychology otherwise. And it's not open to the entire right, public. Right. We've limited to a session essential workers. So a, a clerk in a grocery store, right, or a PSW or a nurse or so on. So we've had a lot of various, like even education workers right now still open, they can access it. It's not a service that's offered to the uh, the entire public. We, because mm-hmm. we don't have the capacity and we don't have that funding to do so but nevertheless we want to make sure our essential workers got some care because they're the ones holding the system together right now with a thread because of covid so we wanted to be there for them and that was a compromise you know we we were to offer something as you know knowing that this is a, an essential service and and unfortunately um you know the decision for us is like it knowing that the government was not going to invest in this is like do we provide or not provide it so do we you know let patients go on our own with nothing or do we do something and exactly uh, and to yeah to 325 psychologists of OPA and others that are not part of OPA have volunteered their time you know on average two to four hours a week of their practice dedicated to this
0: I think it's an amazing thing. I think it's it, it really speaks to, you know, sometimes I think psychologists are seen because, you know, we do charge and, you know, we charge a fair bit, right? We've got very extensive training. You know, we spent, you know, in my case, I think I was in graduate school for eight years. You know, it was 12 years of university total. Yeah. And so, yeah, we we do charge a fair bit for that. And, you know, I think we're sometimes seen as um, money grubbing. <laughs> Right. Yeah. <laughs> because of that. and I think it's a very unfair thing because, I, you know, I, we actually do do a whole lot of work, um, you know, pro bono, because, you know, I, I, and I see this so not just in myself, but in so many of my colleagues, we really genuinely care yeah. and we want to see, you know, the services there. And and this is a great example of that, you know, of, of, of psychology rising up and and solving a problem, you know, through direct action. But I'm also concerned that it's enabling,
1: right? The, well, you know, a, and yeah. the truth, right? Do we cut through the, all the, the nonsense and provide the care because it's the right thing to do? Uh, but at the same time, if there's no recognition of the uh, of the work that's been done. And, and, you know, I'm speaking now as a public-funded psychologist in my family mm-hmm. health team, right? I look at this and say, well... These services should be accessible. Like, I mean, what do you think the bottom line? You know, when you rent an office, you have to pay overhead. Like, my family health team is not free either, right? It's uh, it probably right. in terms of cost, it's equivalent. Uh, you know, when we pay our psychiatrist colleagues, it, it could be you know uh, hundreds of thousands a year, right, for mm-hmm. for a service that's publicly funded, and they're set up the same way we are. Like, I feel I look at a psychologist in private practice, and I look at a physician that gets paid by OIP. The only distinction legally between the two practitioners from a business standpoint is really who pays for the service. Is it OHIP or is it extended health benefits? Um, so when I looked at the way practices are incorporated, for example, there are not many differences between a solo practitioner's physician versus a solo practitioner psychologist. It's, yes. you know, and the, the only difference between uh, a publicly funded service or not is really who's covered under OHIP, which is the sad part.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it really is. It really is. Yeah.
1: We're seeing demand increase. You're seeing the same thing, right? Yeah. And we've seen it for five years now. We had a momentary blip the first two months of COVID when we actively surveyed members. For the first two months, we've had Mm -hmm. a a blip in services, and especially mostly tied to one uncertainty from a patient's perspective, uh, but also giving time for psychologists to move to virtual care. So, um, but those two months, we, we've seen psychologists go from 25% virtual to 85% virtual. Yeah. That's amazing. Two months to switch an entire profession and EL. And, and then after that, when we look at things like our final psychologist um, database, like uh, people seeking services, we've actually tracked a number of people uh, seeking services. Last month alone, 10,000 patients, Ontarians, visit OPA's website. It's an obscure, non-advertised website, 10,000 unique patients in Ontario <laughs> yes. that clicked through a system and connected to psychologist. Yeah. And, and we could see that month over month, we're seeing that increase now. And we know fall and winter are very, um, you know, the demands for services increases. So now we have COVID, we have yeah, yeah. You know, winter all intersecting, and, and the, the demand's increasing. And when we surveyed our members, it's the same thing. Um, short of the comprehensive cognitive assessments that I've, had stalled, uh, the need for psychotherapy services is actually going up without no added new right. funding to it.
0: Right. Right, right, and the cognitive assessments, of course, have you know really been affected by, you know, COVID because it you know it often requires face to face contact and it's it's a it's more difficult, but it raises an inter- interesting issue too because the the role of assessment, right? When we talk about. You know, who does psychotherapy? There's a lot of people who can do psychotherapy, right? Nurses, OT, RPs, you know, the registered psychotherapists, uh, registered social workers, uh, physicians, and psychiatrists, in addition to psychologists, right? Correct. There's a lot of people out there. But we're not necessarily identical, right? No. You know, psychology receives a very, very intensive level of training, and the nature of the assessments that we do, are intensive as well. Right. We have uh, by virtue of our training, we have access to certain tools and techniques of assessment, you know, that other professions may not have. Right. And we have access to the controlled act of diagnosis. Right. So there's something that we're we're bringing to the table that, you know, an RP may not be able to bring to the table.
1: Well, that's the thing. And I think it's important to recognize that all our colleagues have a role to play in a system. Like, everybody has a role, right? If you have children yeah, I really darn sure want access to nurses and physicians to help me get through this cancer. No, 100%. No, if I have a traumatic brain injury, I want to be able to see my physiatrists and neurologists and neuropsychologists. And it's recognizing that we have a workforce in Ontario that includes multiple professionals. Each are trained differently, with a different scope, with a different level of training. Um, and it's important to recognize, right, there are very clear distinctions between social work and psychology for example, that people don't recognize. And, you know, to speak highly of my colleague social workers, they do a lot of great work when it comes to connecting with systems, with families, with case management and so on, right? Training that psychologists do not have. And I and I, I was fortunate to train both social work and psychology. So I get to see both worlds. But when it comes yeah. to psychology, I think one is understanding complex cases. Right? When something is really complex and for in front of you, we have the tools and training to disentangle things and really really provide uh, a good picture of what we're dealing with and provide recommendations and options that are tailored to the needs of that patient. So when, and to your point about, you know, graduate school and training, when you think about it in terms of training, right, this, you know the first three years of our PhD is 600 to a thousand hours of practicum hours with patients and supervised practice then we hit to our internship or residency that's another 12 months or 1600 hours right and then on top of that not only like you know once you get your PhD and you're a doctor now you're a psychologist you still have to do a year or two of supervised practice under two psychologists to make to then get the stamp of approval from a systems perspective to say yeah you're you're good enough now You're you're trained enough to see patients on your own and and yeah, the training yeah. between psychologists and psychiatrists, though different in terms of length, is very similar, right? The physicians will have a four-year pre-med and three, four-year med school. Then they have five years of residency program. And then when we start of looking at the hood for psychotherapy particularly, right? So psychologists and psychiatrists do have a minimum training in psychotherapy. But then, the, you know, when you're, in, you're doing your MSW and, and other, um, and OTs, for example, those training opportunities are not provided during those masters. They have to be acquired afterwards. So there are no mandatory psychotherapy training for family physicians, for example, or nurse practitioners, Um, and even for social workers. For registered psychotherapists, a little differently because they're specifically trained as psychotherapists. There is expectations that you come in with supervised hours, but again, it's 450 hours of direct patient contact, right, Uh, before you graduate and become qualified. Um, The OTs, when you look at psychotherapy, is probably the one with the greatest threshold of a side of psychologists, but then not a lot of OTs will actually go through that intense in rigorous process to become psychotherapists. So I think it's right. recognizing the strength of re, uh, weaknesses of all the professions. And then how do we connect this in, in terms of, of model and working together with the strength of each professional?
0: Right. Because one of the things that bothers me is that, you know, when, when we get a call at our, at our clinic, Right. And, and we can provide, you know, we've got social work here. We've got RPs piece here. Uh, we may soon have OT and, you know, of course we have psychology. Yeah. And when that call comes in, you know, the, there's the, the first question is what have you got the coverage for? Right. <laughs> it's not, what is the need? Yeah. It's, you know, what, where's the coverage? And then we kind of go from there and trying to figure out what the, how we can best fit it according to the economics. Right. Because someone has to be paying and very few people ever come in and say, you know, oh, I'm just going to be paying out of pocket. I don't care. We'll just do what needs to be done. Right. That's very rare. It's almost exclusively. Well, my 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 this is what my insurance will allow. Right. And so we're we're constantly adjusting the service to the payment rather than adjusting, you know, the service to the clinical need. And this is what really bothers me. Right. You know, because sometimes we get people coming in they have to see a psychologist in order to prevent it you know from not being affordable but they could their needs could easily be served by an rp and alternatively right you got someone coming in who's paying out of pocket you know cannot afford you know the psychologist right and they're going to be put with someone that they can afford as opposed to the you know the, the best person for the task and this is this is I think one of the one of
1: the flaws in the system now it is and i think this is the value yeah of psychology right when you have somebody you don't know in front of you and you really get to get, get the bottom of the need um, you know the, the the lengthy assessment that will be done and and psychiatrists do it when there's a medical component to it as well right so when there, there's a need for medication there might be a biological reason for why somebody might have you know a seizure disorder or a uh, you know a depression that might be more resistant to medications and so on so i think there's a role to play for psychiatry and psychology but absolutely they approach things differently
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the other thing, too, is that, you know, I think we end up with um, medication sort of being step one. Yeah. Right. So you go to the family doctor and you say, you know, gee, I'm I'm feeling stressed. You know, things aren't going well at work. You know, my, my family life is difficult. And the doctor is likely to reach for the prescription pad. You know, for for situations that, you know, might very well respond quite well to psychotherapy. Yeah. And they they reach for that pad because that's the tool they've got. They haven't got the time to do the psychotherapy themselves. And this person may not be able to afford access to psychotherapy and the publicly funded. You know, systems that are available are overwhelmed and they're trying to, you know, make sure that, you know, you know, the the person, you know, doesn't clog up the system in a sense. Right. So we'll start with the medication, see if that works. If that doesn't work, then we go to, you know, something else. Right. right. And in my mind, I mean, you know, that's I, I would absolutely I support medication, but not as the first line treatment.
1: Yeah. Right. We guidelines say- for medications, which is wrong. It's not evidence based, but it is the what's covered. So that's the yes. problem. With my colleagues, and every physician I've spoken to, if they had the ability to refer to psychologists to help them. With that, you know that that mental health diagnosis and 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 comprehensive understanding of the patient, and also provide a course of psychotherapy in uh, either as a before the meds or in conjunction with meds. I think that's the that's a win, case That's a scenario, right? And but we need to figure out what that need is, and and we you know that assessment is critical. We need to understand the patient, and that's a that's the strength of psychology. And because we're outside the public system right now. That is a, a, um, you know, it's a massive gap for patients. And it's actually a a risky, dangerous approach to care. Because if we diagnose through medication, that means we might take a very long time to provide. And, And at one point, there's the risk of of dependency of the medication as well where right. and we can't just tape, taper off medication sometimes if they've been used for a very long time whether That's or not right. it's effective so you know you raise a good point and and that ties in the system right where do psychologists fit in and how do we work play nicely with other professions so you might have a great psychotherapist under your supervision so where somebody comes in if money wasn't an issue, oftentimes you would do the triage and the diagnosis and figure out what's going on and you would decide with your team who's more appropriate clinician. And in some case, it might be a psychologist if there's a dual diagnosis or a brain injury or a complex PTSD or complex trauma. Uh, In other times, you have a very competent, capable psychotherapist and social worker who does really well in doing some psychotherapy. And you want that ability to transfer care to that patient. And again, we have to be, if we thought about a system that, you know, thinks about need as opposed to money, then that system would play itself out. We need to leverage everybody's expertise. and, And, but we need the ability to, 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 to send people in the right pathways and the right, you know, and connecting the appropriately to the right care. And right now this is a massive system level gap that we're dealing with.
0: Yeah, it really is. It really is. So what can we do about it? Like what,
1: what are, you know, we, we know the
0: system as it exists really isn't working. It's not meeting the needs of our patients.
1: Yeah. Now you're, you're part
0: of a family health team, correct?
1: That's correct. Yeah. So it, it works well when yeah. you're part of a team. But, you know, when you think about 14 million people, they nobody they don't have the luxury of coming to my family health team to get into disciplinary care. So how do we build this? And that's this? rare. Absolutely, that? right. no, my team uh, is, is exceptionally different from the rest of the teams in Ontario. We're the only family health team that's a mental health family health team uh, where, you know, we have access to psychotherapy, social worker psychology neuropsych we have psychiatry physicians like i mean this is the one of the most multidisciplinary interdisciplinary team we have in the province but it's meant to it's dedicated for about 10 15000 patients which
0: that's are right so, and, and that's that and that's big city right that that's you know it's an urban area right and it's a model which is really not going to translate you know to berry you know or thunder thunder bay or anything like that right yeah. this is yeah, so, yeah like, absolutely. I mean,
1: the, 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 the right solution would be to increase the workforce and distribute it appropriately across the province but mm-hmm. that would you know we'd have to train up you know and double the, the output of clinicians we can do in our programs we'd have to create residencies and we have to create jobs in different parts of the province that are that are attractive to attract people outside of Toronto yeah, and sure. you know and psychiatrists have the same issue like we were talking together a while back and we had the same problem we can't attract qualified mental health professionals up north because the incentives are not there. But, you know, so what's plan B? You know, plan A would be, okay, let's get, you know, 10,000 psychologists distributed equitably across the province and fund appropriately. Is that going to happen overnight? No. You know, like we know it's not going to happen. And yeah. even if we had the money to invest in training, it takes at least five five, ten years to double up and increase that workforce. Mm-hmm. What's plan B? Plan B in my mind is we already have an exceptionally well distributed workforce in some parts of the region, but we also have technology today, right? So you're a psychologist in Barry. Why can I, you know, from my perspective today, knowing that you're now virtual, we're we're actually doing this virtually right now, you and I. You could easily That's provide right. a consultation to physician in Kenora. And actually see the patient in Kenora as well, and then work with that physician on a good plan for that patient. So there's no, you know, technology's coming a long way. So knowing that today is how now do we connect the dots? So I've been working, knowing the province is not going to kick in in any money right now, unless the solution is baked and ready to go. And they might be interested in actually investing in something that's actually working, evidence-based, and we are gathering outcomes. But we knew we had to do this on our own. So in recent years, and, and that was a tale in your presidency, we were starting to talk about technology, right? And you know, we start, you know, we started looking at all the dots, how many psychologists we have in different parts of the and even today, you know, we are talking about distribution. One point five million Ontarians do not have a psychologist in their community. And we have three hundred and twenty yes. communities in Ontario, smaller ones. That are distributed everywhere, and there's not a psychologist in sight. There's no psychiatrists or pediatricians either, by the way. There's no, there's nothing. I, I,
0: exactly. I, I once did a, a calculation, you know, based on the number of uh, of uh, people in Ontario, uh, you know, with mental health concerns, divided by the number of clinical psychologists, right? And I I calculated that there's one psychologist per 900. Now that's not one psychologist per 900 Ontarians. That's one yeah. psychologist per 900 Ontarians with a mental health concern.
1: That needs right? a psychologist.
0: Yeah. We are so, so rare, right? I mean, if you meet a psychologist, take a selfie, because chances are you're never going to meet another one, you
1: know? <laughs> yeah. Let's take some screenshots and, and plaster this over social media here. We're, you know, we're a unique breed. But it's, a, you know, you, you've touched Absolutely. on it. We have 2,000 psychiatrists. We have 4,000 psychologists in Ontario, poorly distributed. So what do we do with that? Like it's an exceptional workforce. Like we're lucky to have that many psychologists and psychiatrists, but the problem is the need of the population is growing and we don't have, we are not matching need to the growth and need to growth in workforce. Um, so what can we do now? And and, and again, it's a stopgap. It's not a, a long-term solution, but we want to create better matching. I think that's one thing we're working with OPA on on a digital hand. Uh, we've partnered with a company that the, the government uses right now, TCLIN, to do some sophisticated matching, right? So if you're a psychologist and you have unique expertise, how do I prevent people that won't benefit from your service from reaching you and really sending you the side of the patients that will benefit from your unique expertise and training. And we want to do that at a province level. So you don't have to pick up that phone call that, you know, sorry, I'm not, I'm not the right psychologist for you. Click. And so we want to reduce that min burden on you. So we want to take that on. This, this
0: is, this is raising a, another, um, Buggaboo for me, actually, and I think it's one that we don't we don't discuss nearly enough in our in our uh, field. Um, it's the issue of specialization. Yes. You know, we have that. Uh, we don't even use that word. We use areas of practice. Right. So according to our uh, college regulations, we have to be authorized for given areas of practice. Now, that means both population. Right, yep. so it's you know you're, you're authorized for adults or you're authorized for children, or you're authorized for adolescents, you're authorized for seniors. These are all you know separate you know categories, and then we're authorized for clinical or neuropsychological you know rehabilitation. Right, so we we uh, uh, school psychology. Right, so we're highly specialized in psychology, correct? Which is partly a strength. Right, where are the generalists? Right. To be a generalist in psychology, you would have to be, you know, uh, authorized in every single area. Right. Which would be enormously burdensome on the practitioner. Right. And there's no generalist category, you know, within our our registration. Right. And now compare that to, you know, uh, RP, you know, the registered psychotherapist. They get training as an RP, and they can then go out and do psychotherapy. It doesn't matter if they're doing it with couples. It doesn't matter if they're doing it with children. It doesn't matter if they never got trained in dealing with children or couples, right? You know, if it's psychotherapy, they're considered to be authorized to perform that controlled act, and the issue of population doesn't really come into it. And I think this is another issue that I think we really have to start grappling with in psychology because, you know, we are, we're so highly specialized, right? That's part of what keeps us in the urban areas, right? That's going to keep us out of you know the, the rural areas because in the rural area, you have to be ready to see whatever walks through your door. If you're going to be hired by a family health team, yeah. You know, they, want, they don't want to hear, oh, sorry, that person's, you know, 65 years old, and I'm not 100% sure that my college will allow me to see that person, which is actually not entirely true, right? Because yeah. the, the college doesn't actually say, here's this date range of ages, right? They say, is it mostly a senior presentation, or is it mostly an adult presentation? Use your judgment. Yeah. But using your judgment is very anxiety-provoking for a psychologist who doesn't want to have a complaint, <laughs> right? We don't want to use our judgment. We want clear lines, and yeah. we create them where they may not actually exist, right? Yeah. And so we, we keep ourselves sort of siloed, and this prevents us from being able to meet the needs
1: of the community, well, that's the thing. And that's a training problem. It's a history problem. We've mapped on like, I mean, it's easier to compare yourself, you know, neuropsychologist and neurologist, psychiatrist a clinical psychologist, a specialty field as opposed to a field that can tackle many things. And that's a that's a big actually a big challenge from a, a policy perspective, from a government standpoint, where you might be able to afford one psychologist in a family health team. Um, but look at myself, I'm a neuropsychologist. I am not authorized to do psychotherapy, nor yeah. was I ever trained in it. So I, to to be fr- perfectly frank, I, I deal with brain injuries and you know, things like cognitive rehabilitation. Um, you know, I might ha- I deal with emotional issues secondary to brain trauma, for example, but you're not the guy, I'm not the guy you would call for, uh, PTSD and psychotherapy. Uh, so we have to be mindful that, you know, for my, for my family health team, I was a good match because the majority of patients have neurological issues, and that's why I'm valued in my team. But if we had somebody with a complex trauma needing, you know, psychotherapy, then my family health team doesn't have any a specialized psychologist for that, and 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 we rely on on social work. But the, our social workers might have. A challenge dealing with psychotherapy with a dual diagnosis population, for example, which is again another subspecialty. So you know it, it creates problems for the psychologists, the profession one way, but because we want to meet population needs, but it, pre- it creates a problem for a system because they don't understand psychology. Most of the most of people yeah. outside psychology will think, well, you do psychotherapy, and then when they meet me, they, they're completely baffled. Like, how can you be a psychologist and not do psychotherapy? Right. Um, and so this is what we're trying to solve as well. How can we make it easy for both psychologists and physicians and everybody else in the system to find the right psychologist for themselves? So yes. navigation and mental health is a big issue. Funding is the other big issue. There's two elephants in the room here, and, and right. one is right. referrals and matching. So how do you match? Again, you're a specialist in your field. I would go to you for PTSD treatment, not to me. You know? So yeah. how do you help somebody navigate that without having to call 1,500 psychologists before you're going to find the right one? So OPA solving for pri- private uh, section one, but not part two, which is the, the other big part that we have to put our heads to.
0: And I couldn't find my brain with two hands and a flashlight. So, Absolutely. you know, we're... <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. You know, that, that, it, it is, it's so, it's so difficult. We're so siloed. And there, there's another issue too, I think, which is interesting. There are certain populations where we've overcome the issues of access, right? Yeah. Uh, to some degree, you know, to a, a greater degree or another. Uh, veterans, right? Yeah. Veterans, once they are pensioned, once they've got the pension, yeah. Access to service is really, really easy. Right. Mm-hmm. But you have to win the pension first. Right. Um, RCMP officers. People don't necessarily realize this. RCMP uh, members are not under OHIP. They have their own healthcare system within the RCMP because they're moving from province to province all the time. Yeah. Similar to the military. Right. It's It's sort of in-house care, in-house treatment. Right. They're they're able to meet the needs of their own members, but of course that's a system which is completely, you know, separate from you know the uh the publicly funded system. Yeah. The motor vehicle accident world, yeah. right? What a what a can of worms that is. That's a whole separate podcast, right? But I mean, you know, you you got more or less hypothetical access to psychology if you can prove the need for it and if you can survive going through the multiple assessments that it takes to repeatedly prove the need for it there is care available if you can find a psychologist willing to put up with the system right yeah. and yeah. and you know the, the the burdensome nature of the of the uh, of the system creates its own barriers in in motor vehicle but at least hypothetically the care is available so a few populations have it, but they're very you know it's 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 so population specific, right? We give a little bit here and a little bit there, depending on who you are, right? You know, uh, and you know ODSP. This this is mind boggling to me. We provide people with a, a, a really inadequate uh, a level of, of income you know if they're disabled right we don't offer them treatment yeah at least for, you know not psychological treatment you know yeah. how can this be how can we be willing to say i will give you treatment only you know, I, I will withhold treatment of the condition which is disabling you but i will provide you with an income indefinitely
1: Well, that's the thing, and you're raising such an important issue, right? When we think about disabilities in Ontario, uh, a a great percentage of persons, like of disabilities, are actually mental health related. And to your point, ODSP, if I look at 2017 data, we had 353,000 people in Ontario that were claiming ODSP. And do you know what a total number for mental functions were? How many? 65%. Wow. 230,000 out of 353,000 were there because something neck up. So an issue yeah. neck up. Depression accounted for 39% of claims. Wow. Developmental disability, 18%. And then neurological issues, 9%. So these are all things psychologists are knee deep into but yeah. yet ODSP doesn't cover it. So the good your good point. Right. So 65% of people on low income in Ontario making $1000 a month on ODSP barely mm-hmm. covering rent, they mm-hmm. have depression, they have issues that we could certainly help with and for time even yeah. getting back to work and addressing the disability itself yet the service not available. And, and frankly, it's the same thing with, um, you know, at the federal government, CCPD, the disability tax credit, you know, even uh, under CCP, which offers the disability pension, uh, 40, 44% were, were neck up issues again. So, but again, no access to treatment. So the people that need it most to return to work have no access to specialty care uh, because we're not covered by a whole hip. So that's, that's another point that you raised, an excellent point, but we need to do more.
0: Yeah. And we've been talking a lot, too, you know, partly because you and I think, you know, both work as adults. uh, But, you know, the issue of prevention. Right. You know, if we can if we can provide care to kids early, hopefully we can prevent them from ending up on that system. And, you know, by by not providing those care, that care in a timely manner. Right. You know, we we end up as a society paying so much more and in so many different ways, whether it's lost productivity, underemployment, criminality, you know, uh, you name it, right? As well as, you know, just frank disability. And it's incredible. The, the costs that arise from not meeting these needs, you know, and yet we tend to view our services as a luxury, right? You know, something which is not a hundred percent necessary, you know, and, it, it, it's. It really. It truly is mind-boggling.
1: It is. And on the point of, of kids, right, we know that, and the data is pretty clear, right? Even the Ontario as the Auditor General was very critical of long wait times in schools uh, for Sky, so, 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 so even school psychology alone, not mental health for kids as a whole. But in uh, in Ontario, we know we have 2 million kids in schools, right, from age 4 to 18 in our primary and secondary school. And I uh, know the data is dated from 2017, but we knew that approximately 9%, or about 180,000 kids, were those identified with special needs. Uh, they're exceptional pupils. Like, I mean, they need access for, you know, things like learning disability assessment and so on. And then we have uh, another 162,008 percent that were not formally identified with special education need, but needed special ed and so on. So these are kids that never got the, uh, you know, the, the the treatment or services they need. Right. So they don't have access to school psychologists. So imagine now. Yeah. Big numbers, but
0: we're not, we're so not don't even, we don't even, yeah, we don't have a sense of what's wrong with these kids, right? In, in and, you know, yeah. I, as a, someone who works with trauma, right, I know that a lot of those kids who are being identified as special needs are actually dealing with wildly dysfunctional families. You know, they're, they're dealing with abuse. They're dealing with dissociation. They end up looking like they've got ADHD. They end up looking like they've got learning disabilities, right? Because they're not able to attend in class, right? They're not connecting with the teacher, you know, and they, they end up, you know, the teacher's going, well, I don't know, kind of looks like autism, kind of looks like, you know, this or that, right? Yeah. And, you know, the the family physician is is trying to do their best, you know, to, to you know, sort out the problem but without the detailed assessment necessary to know what's really going on.
1: That's and a, it, that's it's problem. it's
0: a tragedy. It is.
1: When yeah. we have yeah. like uh you know we're prescribing things without knowing and we're trying to diagnose with through credit through prescription. And if you're in Toronto you might be lucky you might access a pediatrician, but if you go outside there's no like I mean when you think about it it's three profession that can really have an impact on children when it comes to complex needs and pediatricians um, psychologists mm-hmm. and child psychiatrists, right? And the, the frank reality is that the majority of parents will never access them to, 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 to get clarification. And when there is a learning disability or, or uh, ADHD to some extent and developmental disability, you need a psychologist and they're not accessible. Um, and that even doesn't even touch about the mental health and the suicide crisis, right? We have, you know, um, hundreds of children under the age of 18 that, that take their lives every year The wait list for uh, treatment centers is over 24 months now for kids. a Residential treatment or kind of comprehensive interdisciplinary care, including psychologists. It takes at least two years. So come on. Like, I mean, you're right. Prevention, if we're not supporting these kids earlier on, these kids are going to be on ODSP later on. And these are the kids that are going to be using our ED visit, ER. And, you know, at $2,700 a day, visit, that's a lot of money we're throwing down the tank.
0: That's right. That's right. And think how much psychotherapy that could provide.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. 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 And the patients that keep coming to – like, I mean, we did a study at CAMH when I was there looking at ED visits, right? The average cost is $2,700 per ED visit, and our homeless people kept rotating through, get a bandage and get discharged without never getting the comprehensive care they need because CAMH was not – like, I mean, they're doing the best they could, but they don't have access to the – That's right. The, the treatments and, and services they need. Even occupational therapy would have been very helpful for traumatic brain injuries and, and, you know, things that come to training. training some That's cam H, right? That's, that's cam My Canada. local hospital.
0: Right, right. My local hospital, you know, basically it's, it's, you know, it, it, they can stabilize, right? They can provide stabilization on an inpatient level. Yeah. They can provide day hospital, short-term group based work on an outpatient uh, level. Right. I don't believe there's a lot of individual psychotherapy, which is available there. No. And, you know, it's, it's it's you know, you go through the program and it's OK now, you know, good luck, you know, and, and, and it's a real, real problem.
1: Well, the thing we provide some case management, but if you're lucky, but beyond that, you know, patients are left to their own device to navigate. And that's the frustration where maybe 20 percent will have good benefits and extend health, but the 80 percent that really need it. Don't really get anything, and that's what we need to solve for.
0: Exactly, exactly. You know, know, that's, that's the tragedy here, right? Yeah, we're doing okay as a profession, meeting the needs of people who have the resource to have a decent job with good benefits. Yeah. You know, and so many people. Are, you know, fall through the cracks. And in a sense, good thing, because there's nowhere near enough of us, right? That's another issue, right? How do we increase the numbers of, of psychologists? How do we increase the numbers of members of our college, right? You know, of people who can do the diagnosing and this kind of a thing. I believe that, you know, our, our current system, which is so heavily dependent on, um, you know, developing the, uh, uh, the doctorate. Right. takes yeah. so many years to get there. There's also something called the PsyD. That's and correct. And the PsyD is like a, a professional degree. There's mm-hmm. a few schools out in, in um, uh, the um, United States where you can get this uh, a doctorate. It's faster. You know, one of the things that tends to create a very slow process of becoming a psychologist is that we have this model uh, where you know not only do we get clinical training, but we also get pretty intensive scientific training, and we actually complete our own research study as part of that, which is fantastic, and I think it 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 yeah. it's really helpful. you know, I've been finding it helpful dealing with the pandemic. I'm so glad I've got the scientific training to help me understand some of what's going on, right? Yeah. It's it, you know I, I can understand science beyond just psychology, right? Yeah. but it's also possible i think to achieve that without doing what i did which is to attempt to do a meaningful dissertation you know that's going to change the world and then put it on the shelf and it collects dust for the next 20
1: years (laughs) and in canada quebec solved for this and you know half the psychologists in canada are non-quebec and they produce quebec has two-thirds of ontario's population yet they pump out double the number of psychologists than ontario does and the, the way they have achieved that is they created three streams for psychology, pure research, research intervention, the PhD classical mm-hmm. route, and the PsyD, all under one roof. So uh, and it's a university-based. There's a lot of rigor that goes into it. Like the students that come in a PsyD program still have to publish a yeah. paper. They still have to do their research methods, but they're not going to go as crazy as you know, publishing right. papers, a, a 600-page dissertation. So it's really geared towards the, the students so if the student wants to be a researcher, option is there for him, But if or her. And if they want to do yeah. clinical, and and all the universities are very, except the English ones in Quebec, McGill and Concordia don't have that. All the Francophone universities in Quebec have the three streams now. And you have University of Montreal who can pump out pure clinicians, just like an MD, where there's no real research. If an MD wants to do a PhD... They can do a PhD, but it's after their MD. So yeah. the same thing with this ID, where you do your undergrad, you do four years of graduate work in with your coursework, your, your theory, your practica, all integrate into one, and you remove that two-year period of intense research. Um, you know, we, you still have one-year research to do, but you don't have to do that that full three years. Then when you come out, you have a graduate who's ready to do clinical practice. Um, and the yeah. same element, there's trained as well as the other PhDs, but doesn't have to do the PhD route, which is adds two, three years to, uh, to a, a, a path. So when you have a student who doesn't want to do research, being forced to do research, imagine the impact on the mental health of that student. That's, you oh, know, yeah. We're running them to the mill. <laughs> Shouldn't we all go through that? Even, let's face it, even if you are wanting
0: to do the research, you're still going to be impacted.
1: But <laughs> Imagine now if we can actually recruit students. Again, it's about matching desires and needs. Yeah. Um, we would produce way better clinicians if we actually accepted a lot more students but providing a clinical screen. And then we do so much better research if we can match a student that has a, a, a deep interest in science and behavior and cognition into those programs. So then imagine you have – just imagine you have 100 students who wants to get in, right? Uh, you, in Ontario, we accept 10. Yeah. And we're all researchers and all scientists. In Quebec, they accept 20 or 30, but then they go in the right streams. So out of your pool of 100, you right. match the, the, the desires of the student to the right profession. And at the at the end of the day, you have a lot of researchers coming out of Quebec. You have a lot of clinicians coming out of Quebec. And they have half the psychologists in Canada because yes. they, 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 every year they pump out as many clinicians as you need. They still have a a gap in services in Quebec, but that said, that gap is much lower than what we have in Ontario. And that's why the problem in Ontario, we're trying to piece together something that isn't appropriate for patients because we don't invest appropriately in the right workforce and the right, you know, the right training. And to your point, we need more to, And we did that. OPA-CPA released a paper in 2018, specifically around that. So, yes. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Absolutely. I I think this is the moment we pause and reflect on the fact that we've just solved all the problems in mental health in Ontario. Ah, You You know, all we have to do is get psychologists out into the communities, reduce their level of specialization so they can meet the needs more readily. You know, we need to fund them more effectively. We need to ensure that, you know, we're able to fund all the professions so that we're able to get to the right level of care for the presentation. And we need to produce a whole heck of a lot more psychologists right by you know increasing the level of, of training available reducing the amount of time it takes to do it uh was there any other solution that i missed i i no, I, think and I, that,
1: I think you just have to wait till 2021 now because covid <laughs> into like i mean we wanted to do this year but you know we have to wait till next year now but you're you right know, it might yeah, yeah yeah
0: maybe april april 2021 i think we'll see all this solved
1: exactly <laughs> confident. yeah
0: Oh my god. Well it's great talking to you, my friend. Thank you so much for taking the time. You know, as as once again we've sat down and 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 blathered on like, you know, <laughs> we've got the answers to the world's problems, which is not an unusual thing for
1: you and I. <laughs> no, no. And well let's do it again. let's let's aim to do it again in, in March, in, uh, March, April to see where we're at with our Absolutely. Our Absolutely. All right, thank you so much, Sylvan. Great talking to you. Excellent. Have a good one. Bye bye. Bye bye.
0: You have been listening to On Psych, presented by the Ontario
1: Psychological Association. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.